The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. It's a simple lead-in to what we're talking about this morning. Our series has been on looking at how the coming of Jesus Christ satisfies our deepest longings. We've said that we've had a longing to be loved and that Christ came and he simply said this, do you want to know that you're loved? I came into the world and I'm saying that I loved you. That we had a need to be ruled. That we know that we can't live without rule over us. That we were designed to worship and to serve something. And that Christ came into the world to say, I'm the true king. Come and be ruled by me. And come and at that time experience the greatest freedom and peace that you've ever known in your life. Actually come alive with who you were designed to be. And then last week, Andrew uh, did so well, did such a great job of explaining that we have a deep need and a longing for truth. We want to know truth. All of us want to know that. We talk with someone and we look at them and we want to go, I want to believe what you're saying is true. But we have deep down a cynicism. We're jaded because we've been lied to so often in this world. And God comes and says, I am truth. I am the truth, the way, the life. And no one comes to the Father but through Christ. And so we see that truth. This morning we're going to talk, and it doesn't take much convincing to say that all of us, all of humanity has a deep longing to be healed. And I'm not talking about physical healing per se, although that's a part of it. What I'm talking about is that deep brokenness and disease of the heart that all of us know is there. Very few people uh, in the world today uh, hold to the fact that man is innately good. They would say that that there is goodness within man. But in general, it is incredibly difficult to make an argument just from the simple headlines uh, that I gave you this morning. Just a, a little taste to say that man is innately good. Because it it's easy to look around and see that there's something broken within the very heart of humanity. There's something about us that causes these griefs between, uh, between people. You see the breakdown in families. You see the breakdown within society. You see the breakdown in governments. You see all of these things. But then deep down, it's not just between you and somebody else that you know that there's that sickness and heal- that needs healing. It's just simply you alone. It's you alone with your thoughts. It's you alone with yourself. It's you realizing uh, that there's something wrong with you. That when you hear Paul uh, preaching in Romans, when he says, oh, sinful man that I am, who's going to help me? Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? The things that I want to do, I don't end up doing. And the things I don't want to do, I end up doing. What is wrong with me? You can just feel it and hear it from Paul, can't you? And you relate, you know exactly what he's talking about. Because if you were honest with yourself, if you're honest, with yourself, and you went back and you paused and you reflected over the course of your life, there are things that shock you about you. There are things that you have done. There are feelings that you have felt towards other people. There are are things that you've said to even those who you love the most. And you look back and you go, What's wrong with me? Or you you see things that you didn't do. That you knew you needed to do. But yet for whatever reason you withheld love. You withheld grace. 
You withheld mercy. You withheld. You were punitive at some level with those who were around you. And so it doesn't take, uh, it doesn't really even take a deep thinker to go far with that. I, I ask people regularly about their lives, be it um, just the near past or their longer past. What's God teaching you about you? What's God revealing to you about you? Does anything surprise you in that? I think about these things regularly. You know what I find that stirs up in me so deeply? I have a longing to be healed. I have a longing to be made right. I have a longing to know that all of this junk that Bill McCutcheon brings to the table is somehow going to be dealt with and forgiven. And I'm going to be healed. That I'm going to be taken care of in that way. Well, that's what we're going to look at today. That Jesus Christ came into the world to save us from our ultimate disease. And that is the disease of the heart and sin. That he came into the world, in Timothy it says, and Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That was it. He didn't come to give a good moral lesson. He didn't come to be a good ethical teacher. He didn't come to be uh, the leader of a zealous little religious cult within Judaism. He came to save sinners. That he came into the world. That means he came from somewhere else. That he entered into time and space. And we're going to deal with that of who he is. That he came into the world. He came into the world with a purpose to save. That it was him who was going to come. And he was going to redeem and save. And to heal those who were lost. To save sinners. And then we say, oh, the audience. that They're sinners. Am I a part of that audience? Do you recognize your place in that audience? Of sinners in need of him. And then how do we respond then? What happens then when we're saying. What's the transaction that takes place? And then ultimately how do we respond. Uh, to this God who entered into time and space. And changed history forever. The incarnation of Jesus Christ. Was the most cataclysmic event in all of human history. It changed it forever. It split time. Before Christ. After death. We've changed those things over the years. We don't want to deal with Christ, but he split history. And you have to deal with him. We have to deal with him. I appreciated so much what Andrew said last week. Are you brave enough? Are you bold enough to really deal with Jesus? Are you, have you ever been wrong in your dealings with Jesus? Has he ever shown you that you're wrong? And if he hasn't, then what you have isn't really a biblical Christ. What you have uh, is an incarnation of yourself that you're dealing with. Because when you deal with Jesus, he exposes things about you. And he's going to expose some things about us in our hearts today. So if you have your Bibles, I'd ask you to go ahead and turn over to 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 12 to 17. Let's pray now and ask God's blessing on this time. Father, we ask now that you would bless us with your presence, that your spirit now would come and teach us, open your word to us and humble us under its authority that we would be convicted and led and encouraged and that we would respond ultimately with great joy and worship to the king. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. This is God's word. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, Because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. 
But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. May he add his blessing to the reading and to the hearing of it. The word incarnation, it doesn't occur in the Bible. It's a Latin word that comes from endocaro, which basically means flesh. That the word took on flesh, that God took on flesh, that deity, Christ, came where he had no body and no shape and no form. That he came and took on human form in the person of Jesus Christ and that he dwelt among us. In that way, that the coming of Jesus Christ into the world, this incarnation of Jesus Christ was the most important event in human history. The church father Athanasius, in his book, The Incarnation of the Word of God, said this. Jesus has not assumed a body as proper to his own nature, far from it, for as the word he is without body. He has been manifested in a human body for this reason only, out of love, out of the love and goodness of his Father for the salvation of us men. Saying the only reason that Jesus Christ came into the world was out of the great mercy and love of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to enter into the world to save humanity, to save men and women. So we're going to talk about a few things this morning. And the first thing is simply this. Andrew was talking about it last week. That we need truth. Paul starts this area, starts this statement. It's one that we've used many, many times uh, after we've had our confession of sin. uh, That now we've been declared uh, forgiven. He said, this is a worthwhile statement. This is a trustworthy statement. And worthy of full acceptance. What Paul's saying is this. This is true truth. This isn't up for discussion. This isn't up for debate. This is true truth. This is truth with a capital T. This is a trustworthy statement. It is a statement that you can place your full trust in and not be disappointed. And it is worthy of your full acceptance. Paul was combating within the church even then that this was just a myth or a legend. Paul was dealing even back then with this idea That people said, oh, this is just a concoction out of your own mind. That God would come into the world. Because back then, there was a pure separatism. There was the spiritual and there was the physical. And there was no way within Greek thought, there was no way within the thought patterns of the ancient Near East, that the God of the universe or any deity in spirit form would come and enter into the dirtiness of the physical world. Those were separated. Christianity came in and shocked everyone by saying, God not only created all of this out of mere verbal fiat. He just spoke it and it came into being. But then after a time and a season, he entered into it. He actually took on human form so that he could redeem it. It is not a myth. Peter wrote in 2 Peter 1.16, We have not followed cunning, cunningly devised fables 
when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter was saying this, this is no myth. This is no cunningly devised fable. But this was truly the coming of God in human form. Paul wrote again in Timothy in chapter 3, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness, that God was manifest in the flesh. That God was manifest in the flesh. The reason I'm starting here that this is true truth, that this is a tenet of the faith that we believe, I want you to hear and be very clear. We talk about in our family, and I've talked about in my, my times as ministering to singles and college students and, and all, and youth, that dating is all about concealing. Dating is all about concealing, but marriage is all about revealing. And so we have a very large problem within the system that we have within our culture of people coming together to be husband and wife. Well, I want to make sure that if any of you are here and you're sort of dating the church, you're kind of, I call it the sniff test. You're coming in, just give a little sniff, see what we're all about, see what we believe, see what we're like, see what the worship is like, see what I'm like, see all those things. I want you to hear very clearly I'm going to reveal to you this. This is what we believe to be true, that Jesus Christ was the Son of God who came into the world, who took on flesh, dwelt among us, that he lived, that he died, was crucified, was buried, was raised from the dead, and has ascended into heaven, and one day he's coming back again. That's not a myth. That's not a fable. That's actually truth that we're willing to stake our very lives on. And if you ever hear anything else, I'm giving you freedom and privilege to do this. If you ever hear anything else come out of, hard to say this, pulpit, better to have a big pulpit out of this sacred desk. But if you ever hear anything coming from me or some of the other pastors that is different from that, leave. Or make us leave. But that's who we are. And that's what we believe. That Jesus Christ came and took on human form and dwelt among us. That it's true truth. That that actually happened. Because you see, there are very strong movements within the world today and within Christendom even and in the church that attack that the early part of the night of the eight excuse me of the 20th century the seminaries the great seminaries of, of Princeton and of Yale and of Columbia and other seminaries that were training the men and women uh, of God to come and to lead the church under under men like Schleiermacher and under men like Bultmann and these men like Bart they came and they perverted the gospel in such a way that they said, we're going to take away all the myth and all of the fables. And one of the things they had to take away was the actual historicity of the coming of Jesus Christ. And there was a work that was done in 1977 that I had to read in seminary, not in 1977, but when I was in seminary. And it was called The Myth of God Incarnate. And this is one part of it. It said the Christians of the early church lived in a world in which supernatural causation was accepted without question and divine and spiritual visitants were not unexpected. Such assumptions, however, have become foreign to our situation. In the Western world, both popular culture and the culture of the intelligentsia have come to be dominated by the human and natural sciences to such an extent that supernatural causation or intervention in the affairs of this world has become, for the majority of people, simply incredible. What he basically is saying is this, and it's a large work. It's a work that has influenced, sadly, so many people. He's saying this. If you believe that Jesus Christ came into the world 
that he dwelt among us and he was truly God. And you're believing a myth. That intelligent people, that smart people, that studied people don't believe such things. I'm here to say we do believe it to be true with all of our intellect, profound and deep as it is. That we believe the God of the universe came and was near to us in that way. And if you don't think that the universities and colleges are trying to destroy that belief, you're crazy. And that the media and all, they're attacking it at every... I went to Presbyterian College. Wonderful fighting blue hose of Presbyterian College in Clinton, South Carolina. My father went there and graduated in the 50s. And people go, oh, so you went to a Christian college. No. I went to a college that's still affiliated with a mainline denomination. But I wouldn't call it Christian. My Bible teacher and my surveys would regularly tell us that what we're studying are myths and fables and that it's important for you to experience these things um, sort of supernaturally, to experience them existentially. But you don't need to believe that they're actually true. Simple people believe that they're true. We're the educated and we know these things aren't true. We're being assaulted with these things, but know that this is true truth. Paul said this is a trustworthy statement and full and worthy of our full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world. The incarnation actually took place. And then the second thing that we need to know is that not only is it true truth, but that Jesus Christ became the Son of God. Uh, but Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became man. That he became man and he dwelt among us. So the thing that you need to see here is that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Or in Philippians 2, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Or in Ephesians 4, in saying that he ascended, what does it mean? But that he has also descended into the lower regions of the earth. You see, the picture is this, that Jesus Christ is fully God, and he's fully man, that the birth uh, of Christ through Mary, was fully human. That we need to know that he's fully human. That he wasn't partially human. That he, didn't, he wasn't sort of a vague human. But he was fully human. And that in his full humanity, he relates to us. And that is so incredibly important. Why is it so important to believe that he was fully human? I know this is Theology 101. And some of you guys, it's warm in here. And I'm sweating too. But uh, stick with me for a minute. This is so important. You need to believe that he's fully God. That he's fully God and fully man. Why is it important to know that? Because in his full humanity, he relates to us and can then take our place, humanly speaking. That he can stand before the judge and say, I now stand in human form before you, Father. And I am taking on the sins of all of those whom you have given to me. And I stand and I will be judged on their behalf in my full humanity. But he had to be fully God so that he could do that with great perfection that he could live that life without sinning, that he could then come and he could, as our high priest, offer to God that sacrifice and it be accepted, that 
Tim uh, Pitzer would be able to tell you this and explain it, and Andrew's studying for his ordination now as well. So you can talk to them and ask them what the hypostatic union is. But the hypostatic union is that beautiful thing of the full deity of Christ and the full humanity of Christ come together. And he dwelt among us. And so it's important to know who Jesus is and what that's all about and to believe those things. There was a controversy within the church throughout all of the times of the church. And every controversy that came, the largest ones at least, were about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Was he fully God? Was he fully man? Think about this. The Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe that he was fully God. That he was a God. It's just an old heresy that's still coming and, and taking the shape today in a different cult and religion. Uh, that, uh, that the Mormon faith believes that Jesus was a created being. And that he wasn't fully God. He was just created. Paul is saying neither of those are true. He was begotten of the Father. Was always with God. John wrote it this way. The Apostle John said this. He was in the beginning with God, that he was God in that way. Martin Luther of that verse wrote this. We have not invented this text about the eternal Godhead of Christ. By the special grace of God, it has come down to us and will, I dare say, remain despite all heretics, many of whom will yet try with their prowess on it and continue to the end of the world. This truth will be assaulted constantly in our world. Constantly, the question of Christ and who he was. So then we have to ask, it's true, and we know it's true, and we believe that he's fully God and fully man, so he entered into the world. What was the purpose then of the incarnation? Paul says this, the purpose of the incarnation was this, to save sinners. To save us from what? To save sinners. He said, I came into the world to save you. I came into the world to heal you. By his stripes, we are healed. The purpose of the incarnation always has in mind the crucifixion and the cross and the resurrection. You can't understand one without the other. But that we come into this understanding that the clear purpose was to save. That Christ himself defined the purpose by saying this in Mark. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Peter wrote this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep. And now you have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Think about what the angel said. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, meaning Savior. For he shall save his people from their sins. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. For Christ's own words, for the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. He came not to give us moral teaching. He came not to do anything other than to save those things which are lost. So I guess the next question then has to become this. Do you, there's a clear purpose for Christ's coming. That he came to save. But there's also a clear recipient or a target, if you would. It's sinners. It's those who are lost. This is where we're going to spend a little bit of time. Because it's important to understand a couple of things here. Paul says, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Of which I am the worst. Think about this. This is the Apostle Paul. I wouldn't have enjoyed hanging out with Paul. I wouldn't have known what to say. It would have been worse than you going golfing with me and finding out I'm a pastor. You wouldn't know how to respond. And most guys don't. They're like, oh, I, sorry. I, oh. I, went to a, I went to a high school reunion a few years back, a number of years back. And a friend of mine who I hadn't seen in a number of years, she came up to me and she'd had a beverage or two. 
And she came up and started just spouting off all about her life. And every expletive that came out, uh, that could possibly come out, was coming out. And then she looked at me and she says, so what the blank do you do now? I said, well, I'm a pastor. She goes, bloop, and words I can't repeat. And then she started to confess everything in her life right there in front of me. I was like, this is really awkward. This is, this is very odd. And so if I'm around the Apostle Paul, I would have felt a lot like my friend felt around me going, I don't even know what to say. My thoughts are wrong. My, I, my emotions, I can't. You're more, oh my gosh, you're Paul. And Paul went, I am the chief among sinners. I was a blasphemer and a persecutor of the church. I was an insolent disobeyer of God's word and I didn't believe him for who he was. He said, I know my own heart in such a way that I know it is desperately lost within me. The words of Jeremiah would ring so true to Paul. Oh, the heart, how deceitful and wicked it is. Deceitful above all else. He knew himself. He knew his condition. He knew his desperate need of a savior. He knew his lostness in the midst of that. And the question then has to become to you, do you see yours? How do you consider yourself? Do you just need a little savior? Little sinners need little saviors. Paul understood that he needed a massive savior to come and to save him. Because when he considered his heart, he saw it and its darkness. People sometimes mess with me and go, gosh, you're Presbyterian. And, oh, you're even worse than that. You're one of those Presbyterian Church in America guys. You're one of those PCA guys. You guys hammer on sin and the condition of the heart and the human condition too much. You make us feel terrible about ourselves when we come to your church. I don't like the churches that you lead. I'm like, you know, there's some warrant to that accusation in some of the churches in our denomination. But I think one of the things that I want you to understand is to, coin, to turn a phrase that that a pastor I heard once said, the way up is first to start going down. That the way to go up is ultimately first to go down. To see your desperate need. You'll never on a plane grab on uh, to the parachute unless you've heard the stewardess say, oh, by the way, the plane is heading down. We're going to crash. Then all of a sudden, you're going to grab hold of those things. Then you're going to be looking at that simple little sheet, and you're going to put down all the silly things uh, that you've been looking at to buy, and you're going to go, how do I get out of this plane? What happens when we hit the water? What happens to all of these things? Unless you know your desperate need of Christ, he's nothing more than a snap-on. He's nothing more than a convenience or at times an inconvenience for you. But if you desperately know, as Paul did, your heart and your desperate need of him, then you run to him and cling to him no matter what anybody says to you. And you may be going, Bill, I'm not a blasphemer. I, I'm not a persecutor uh, of the church. I, I'm not an insolent, disobedient person. I mean, come on. I do a few things. Well, have you, have you ever shaded the truth? A white lie? Anybody drive 46 this morning on your way in on 278? You ever cursed? Been angry? These things? You go, oh, come on, Bill. Do you realize that Christ died for all of those? That just because of those simple little things that we stand condemned before God? We go, those are just, come on, Bill. Gotten drunk? Sex outside of marriage? Misplaced sexual intimacy in those things? Masturbation? Pornography? You go, wow, come on, Bill. Well, how about this one? Have you ever considered why Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed? 
And you're going to go, oh, for their heinous sins. Oh, that terrible stuff they did. Well, if you read in Ezekiel 16, it says this, that God cursed Sodom and Gomorrah because of their lack of charity to the poor. Have you cared for the poor? Are you generous in those ways? Do you see your own heart? Do you look into your heart and do you recognize, oh my goodness. And you understand Paul when he said, oh, heart, who's going to save me from this thing? When you recognize I am the chief among these. Because at that point, you are no longer comparing yourself to one another. You're comparing yourself only to the standard of God's holiness. And when you look at the standard of God's holiness and it grows in your understanding uh, over time, then you see in your own life, oh, the growth of your own heart and the not condition of your heart, but the knowledge of the condition of your heart. And you realize what a massive savior you have to have. What a massive cross it takes. Little sinners need little saviors. Eric Alexander, a wonderful Scottish pastor, was preaching uh, one summer at our General Assembly in St. Louis at Covenant uh, Presbyterian Church. And Lisa and I were there, and we're sitting about six rows back from this elevated big pulpit. Everything sounds better with the Scottish burr. I don't know why. But to hear Dr. Alexander telling uh, of the glories of Christ, and then he told this great story of this drunk in Glasgow who would sit around there at the fountain, and he would accost the people of the Tron Church as they came in to worship each day and make fun of them in his drunkenness. And then as time went on, he would get a little closer and bolder, and he was at the front doors of the church. And he would sit there, and he would accost the people as they came in, but then after the church service began, he would listen. And he would hear the hymns of the faith, and he would hear the opening of God's word. And then after some time, still drunk, he came into the church, and he would sit in the narthex, and he would listen. And people would pass by, and they would look at him and wonder why he was in their church. And then he came and actually got bold enough to go into the back row of the church and listen. And even to begin maybe singing this drunk and adulterer and conniver within the community. And then Dr. Alexander said, oh, but how wonderful. He gave his life to Christ and he's now serving as a deacon and a leader within that church. I thought, that's awesome. What a cool, isn't that a cool story? The drunk out there, somehow God in all of his mercy, this drunk, this adulterer, this, this terrible man had come in and he had gotten saved right there in the church. And more than that, he was a deacon within the church. I was like, that's cool. That's great. And then Dr. Alexander looked over the pulpit and I think he was looking right at me. And he said, that's quite a response for a respectable sinner such as yourself. Because what he nailed in my heart was this. Wow, it took a lot of grace to save that messed up dude. It didn't take a lot to save Bill McCutcheon. But man, that guy, what a story. There's a trophy of God's grace. I didn't need much because I'm not all that messed up. It's not until you see your desperate need of Christ that you'll cling to him as your only hope. It's not until you see your utter lostness. Your utter lostness. And some of you are going, well, it's not because of all these things. Here's another one. This is from a great pastor in Pittsburgh who made this statement. It's not so much your abominable sins that you should repent of, but your damnable good works. Maybe for some of you, you're clinging to your righteousness. And you believe that the best way to avoid Christ is to avoid sin. And so you're going to live a very pure and holy life. 
and in your own warrant and in your own legalism and in your own uh, moralism. You're presenting that to the king to say, accept me because of the good that I do. And he says, be very careful. Christ came to save sinners. How do you view yourself? How do you view yourself? Do you see your need of him today? Because ultimately, why he came was this. There's a clear result. That he came to set captives free. That he came to destroy the works of the devil. That he came to take away the power of death. Now, since all of these children share flesh and blood, he also took on flesh and blood to be like them. So that by his death, he might take away all the power of him who had the power of death. That he took away the sting of the law, the curse of the law. And basically what happened was this. That because of what Christ has done on your behalf. And that by your faith in him and belief in him, you become his righteousness. You gain his righteousness and he takes on all of your sin. He bore our sins to the cross. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. Why? That you might become the very righteousness of God. Do you realize that today? That because of the completed work of Jesus Christ, when he sees you, he sees the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he celebrates over you. Of who you are. He loves you in that way. He's healed you. He no longer looks at you as a leper. He took your leprosy. He no longer looked at you as lame. He took your lameness. He came in and came into your poverty. Listen to what John Calvin wrote on these things. I'd encourage you to include Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion within your library somewhere. For Calvin, the great French theologian and reformer, wrote this. This is the wonderful exchange which out of his measureless benevolence he has made with us. That becoming son of man with us, he has made us sons of God with him. That by his descent to earth, he has prepared an ascent to heaven for us. That by taking on our mortality, he has conferred his immortality upon us. That accepting our weakness, he has strengthened us by his power. That receiving our poverty upon himself, he has transferred his wealth to us. That taking the weight of our iniquity upon himself, which oppressed us, he has clothed us with his righteousness. What great words. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And you'll find your salvation in him and no one else. And then Paul ends, and I'll end with this. What's then the proper response of the sinner who comes and receives the grace of this Savior who comes and heals him? It's to worship. It's to worship. Listen to how this flows. He's just finished this great teaching. And then right at the end of it, he goes, I've received mercy with no reason that in me, as the foremost, Jesus might display. Basically, he said, I know why Jesus chose me. Jesus chose me to show other people, wow, if I can save Paul, I can save anybody. Paul knew himself. And he celebrated, and it didn't leave him to walk around like, oh, man, how terrible this is. Look at how bad I am. Look at what it did. It turned his focus away from himself. And he said, now... To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God to ought to be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He sang a hymn. People who know how much they've been saved from. People who recognize from where they've been brought. To, who see what they've been given in Christ. Sing. They worship. Now I'm going to risk something with you this morning. You need to sing better. As a church. You sing as a church. That has a small savior. 
We sing and worship as people who have a small gospel. But people who recognize what Jesus has done for them worship him. They sing, now all praise be to this God. Who's done immeasurably more than I could have ever asked or imagined. That when I consider my heart that he would love me, what can I do but sing his praises to the world? Show me a person who doesn't sing within the church and I'll show you a person who has a spiritual problem deep down in their hearts. So I'm encouraging you. Don't just sing to make me feel better. It's not about me. Don't just sing to make Matt and the team better, though it would help at times because it's hard to sometimes sing out and go, hey guys, you with us? And he's like, mm, no. Okay. Sing. You don't have to be good at singing. You have to be profoundly impacted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. To raise hands before him, to fall on knees before him, and simply sing praises. Because guess what's happening right now for all the saints who are in front of him? They are casting on crowns, singing to God be the glory, both now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. God, would you begin to penetrate into our hearts these truths that we've talked about today? Would we see why Christ came into the world? Would we know who he is and would we deal with him? Not all of his ethical teachings, not all the moral teachings, but deal with him. That if he is who he says that he is, then we have to wrestle with him and the implications of that in our life. And I pray, I pray that we would, we would see him today and we would see our desperate need of him. And for some here today, that today would be the day they give their lives to you. They would finally bend the knee. They would quit playing around with you. They would quit tinkering with you. And they would fall before you as their king and healer and master. Father, and then would we see you lift us up? And would we join with the congregation in singing? Praise be to our God. Hail him. Hail. In Christ's name, amen.